Welcome to Scam This. This week, we're diving right into the headlines, from El Salvador making Bitcoin its national currency to a Confederate statue being taken down in Virginia. Plus, the latest on where things stand with Britney's conservatorship. Then, thanks to the Delta variant, it seems like more children are at risk of getting COVID-19. To clear things up, we called a doctor to understand what's going on with kids and COVID. Later, we'll skim the recall election in California in 60 seconds and reflect on the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. And we'll wrap things up by telling you about a big milestone for dating apps. Don't worry, we've got some dating app survival tips too. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr, let's skim this. Okay, literally right before we published this, we started hearing about a major development from the White House involving vaccine mandates. We don't have every detail yet or a sense about what kind of legal challenges there might be to this, but the details coming into focus are still pretty important. Until now, a lot of vaccine mandates have been from individual businesses, companies who insist employees get vaxxed before returning to the office. Basically, if they're paying you, businesses can set the rules, especially now that the Pfizer vaccine is fully approved by the FDA. Most government COVID vaccine mandates have followed a similar logic and have applied mostly to government workers or members of the military. But this week, the White House apparently plans to take things a step further. If you're one of the 17 million Americans who work at healthcare facilities that receive money from the federal government through Medicaid or Medicare, the vaccine likely won't be optional anymore. And President Biden isn't stopping there and plans to say the same rules go for contractors who work with the federal government. And finally, perhaps the biggest piece of news here is that Team Biden plans to enforce mandates beyond the public sector. Biden is reportedly planning to ask the Labor Department to draft a rule requiring that anyone who works at a business with 100 or more employees will have to get the vaccine or get tested once a week. Not complying could lead to a fine of thousands of dollars. If all those mandates go into place, around two-thirds of American workers would be subject to a vaccine mandate of some form. The dust is still settling on this news, and there are still a lot of questions about how this is going to be implemented. And that's where we've got a plug to our colleagues who write The Daily Skim, our morning newsletter. They'll be up all night skimming the latest, and we'll have the deets for you in your inbox first thing in the morning. To sign up, head on over to theskim.com and look for the yellow subscribe button. All right, let's get to some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up. Now, this is strange. Have a listen. In a world-first experiment, every citizen has been given a digital wallet, allowing them to legally make transactions with cryptocurrency. You heard that right. This week, El Salvador became the first country to make Bitcoin its national currency. Salvadorans can keep using the US dollar, but now they have an alternative and can use Bitcoin to do everything from buy a coffee at Starbucks to pay their taxes. El Salvador's president, Nayib Bukele, says this crypto experiment is great for Salvadorans, many of whom don't have bank accounts. Now, thanks to a free government-run digital wallet called Chivo, which means cool in local slang, and $30 in complimentary Bitcoin credit, that could change. Bukele also claims the crypto shift could save money for Salvadorians working overseas, who often pay fees to send money back home. 
But El Salvador's plan is risky too. While the president has bragged about the country owning 550 bitcoins, holding on to Bitcoin for safekeeping isn't like tucking away cash. While Bitcoin could go up in price, giving El Salvador a nice payoff, it's also a highly volatile asset. At one point this week, Bitcoin lost more than 17% of its value. Nobody, and especially no country, likes waking up to that. Meaning, other governments will likely wait to see how El Salvador's gamble plays out before making similar moves. Okay, let's switch things up. Am I saying it the right way, Dr. Mike? Is it moo? Not moo, mu. Oh, mu. Gotcha. What is Mew. Greek letters, mu. Mu. Right. Oh my God. <laughs> Why did they all have to say it at the same time? Here's the context. Last week, the World Health Organization labeled Mu, a Greek letter COVID variant that first appeared in January, a variant of interest. As in, it's checking it out to see how serious it really is. But here's some good news wrapped in some bad news. For Mu to be really concerning, it would need to be more transmissible or cause more severe infections than other variants, including Delta. And for now, a lot of experts say Delta is still way more of a problem than Mu. So despite some of the headlines you might be seeing, it's worth remembering each new variant isn't necessarily worse than the one before it. Next up. the reaction from crowds in Virginia's capital of Richmond on Wednesday as construction workers removed a massive statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Statues like this became a focal point during racial justice protests last year, as activists called for their removal. And while the Lee statue in Richmond was one of the most prominent Confederate monuments still standing, there is still a lot more. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam told reporters this week that while removing the Lee statue was a long time coming, his work isn't over, and that any remnant that glorifies the lost cause of the Civil War needs to come down. We've left a link to a map of public symbols of the Confederacy and updates on their status in our show notes. And our final headline? Britney Spears could soon be a free woman to spend her life and her money however she wants. In a legal filing that could mark a victory for the free Britney movement, Britney Spears' father has asked that a court seriously consider whether his daughter's affairs should still be handled by a conservatorship. For over a decade, Jamie Spears controlled most of Britney's career, finances, and personal life. Earlier this year, Britney testified about her life under the conservatorship, alleging that, among other things, she was forced to work against her will. While the pop star's lawyers called her dad's petition a legal victory, her conservatorship is still in place, at least until her next court hearing on September 29th. Hey skimmers, before we get back to the show, we wanted to let you know that The Happiness Lab is back for a brand new season. Yale's Dr. Lori Santos shares surprising research and inspiring stories that will change the way we think about happiness. She talks to 80s movie heartthrob Rob Lowe about the benefits and pitfalls of nostalgia. She hears from Lady Gaga's mom about how a simple act of kindness by a fan inspired the singer. You'll also get a deep dive into fun. 
Lori asks, where is all the fun in our everyday lives? And why do we never seem to have enough of it? Check out brand new episodes of The Happiness Lab wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get back to the show. Sometimes you see a headline and it's all you have time to read before going back to work or to bed. But when the topic is really important, headlines don't tell the full story. So wouldn't it be nice if you could just call up a doctor friend and be like, Hey, did you guys read that thing in The New Yorker last month about how golf... I read somewhere. I think it was in NPR. Did you read that thing in Mother Jones about... Uh, I read somewhere. Did you read that thing that guy wrote in the sand on the beach? Yeah. Luckily for us, we've got someone on speed dial, Dr. Celine Gounder. She's an infectious disease specialist and an epidemiologist at NYU Medical School. And we have a lot of questions for her about kids and COVID. Earlier in the pandemic, it appeared that children were largely spared the worst of COVID-19's impacts. But this summer, that seemed to change. And now, as kids head back to the classroom, a lot of families, babysitters, and teachers are getting anxious and want to understand how at-risk kids really are. All right, let's give Dr. Gounder a call to try to get some answers. So our first headline is from CNN, and it reads, U.S. COVID-19 cases among children are surging, and experts warn it may get worse. I'm curious, what trends are we seeing when it comes to pediatric COVID cases around the country? We are seeing a larger proportion of symptomatic cases of COVID among kids right now. So kids getting COVID, kids ending up in the hospital with COVID, kids ending up in ICUs, and unfortunately, sometimes even dying from COVID. And we think this is very much related to this relatively new Delta variant, which is more infectious And when it infects somebody, you get much higher levels of virus. They're also more likely to get infected and transmit onward to others. And you mentioned the Delta variant. Are there other reasons why we're seeing this spike in children right now? Well, if you look at who is vaccinated, older people are vaccinated now. Children under the age of 12 are still not yet eligible. And so if you make a big dent in the amount of transmission in older age groups, the remaining transmission is going to be among those who are left over who are not yet vaccinated. And a big chunk of those are our younger people, children under the age of 12. So I want to go to our next headline, which is from CNBC, and it says, Pediatric COVID hospitalization surge to the highest on record in the U.S. as doctors brace for more. And my question for you is, why are more children being hospitalized? Is it just a numbers game where more kids getting infected means more hospitalizations? Or is Delta likely making children sicker than previous strains? Well, we think it's a combination. So we think that we're seeing very high rates of infection transmission in the community with SARS-CoV-2, particularly in certain parts of the country. And so children who are in those communities will be infected. We also think that Delta may be more virulent, which means it causes more severe disease. And that's really uh, in all age groups across the board. But in younger age groups and children where disease has been pretty mild up until now, we are starting to see much more severe disease that's landing kids in the hospital. Here's a headline from the Wall Street Journal, which says, as more children get infected by Delta variant, parents open up to vaccinations. From your perspective, why do less than a third of kids between the age of 12 and 15 have the vaccine? 
Well, I think you have a combination of, of things at play here. I think one, whether a child gets vaccinated is very much predicted by whether the parents are vaccinated. So I think if parents are not vaccinated, the chances of the children being vaccinated against COVID are very slim. But then on top of that, I think you have parents who are more concerned about vaccines in their children and the safety of vaccines in their kids than perhaps they might be for themselves, particularly because earlier in the pandemic, the disease just didn't seem to be as bad in kids. And then I think the other piece is that when you look at timing of pediatric vaccinations, a lot of that is around going back to school. So parents having to document vaccinations to enroll their kids in school, to send their kids back to school. And so that's when they often schedule those those kinds of appointments. And so I do think you're going to see a bump in the 12 and up age range in, in terms of getting vaccinated as kids are heading back to the classroom this fall. The next headline is from The Hill, and it says the FDA sees growing pressure to authorize vaccines for children under 12. Where are we at right now in terms of the authorization process? So this is going to happen sort of in two steps. First, you're going to have the 5 to 11-year-old age group. Right now, it looks like the FDA will be completing its data collection in late September and submitting an emergency use authorization to the FDA in early October. So that would predict uh, emergency use authorization of the Pfizer vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds sometime in November, possibly December. As for children under the age of 5, so we anticipate that the Pfizer vaccine will be authorized sometime in early 2022. And my last question for you is, what would you say to concerned parents or cousins, aunts, uncles right now who are trying to keep their kids or their loved ones safe? The most important things that you can do to keep children safe who are not yet eligible to be vaccinated is to make sure everyone around them is vaccinated and that everyone around them continues to make use of the mitigation measures that we know also work. So that would include masking, spending time indoors in well-ventilated spaces, so opening doors and windows to maximize cross breeze and indoor spaces, and socializing outdoors as much as is possible. So so when scheduling playdates, do those outside, and that really will reduce the risk to kids. Thank you so much. This was really helpful. No, of course. California's recall election is entering its last stretch as early in-person voting is now underway in the state. Even if you don't live in California, you've probably heard about a high-stakes election that's already underway. California's Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, could potentially lose his job next week, which would make him only the third governor in U.S. history to lose their seat. But considering California's a state that's about as blue as they come, how do we get here? Good question. Here's the skim on California's recall election in 60 seconds. A recall is a process in which voters remove elected officials from office, and California makes that process pretty easy. Only 12% of people who voted in the last election for governor need to sign a petition to get the recall started. Despite being reliably Democratic, California has its fair share of Republicans, who've never really liked Newsom's politics. But his handling of the pandemic, from on and off shutdowns to his own violation of strict COVID rules, caused more people, and not just Republicans, to want him gone. 
And now, Newsom's in hot water. To stay in office, he needs 50% or more of voters to reject the recall, which is the first question on their ballots. If a majority want the recall, Newsom is gone, and voters get to pick from 46 candidates to replace him. Conservative talk radio host Larry Elder, a Republican, is the top candidate. And while the prospect of America's most populous state replacing its Democratic governor with a Republican is a big enough story on its own, there's even more at stake here. California Senator Dianne Feinstein is 88 years old. And while she's saying she's not going anywhere, her health has been scrutinized. Should she leave office early and Newsom lose the election, a Republican governor would pick her replacement, potentially causing Dems to lose their razor-thin majority in the U.S. Senate. So that's a big deal. California voters have until September 14th to send in their ballots. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. This Saturday marks the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terror attacks. For most millennials, 9-11 occurred at a time when we were young, but conscious about the world. For us, and for most other Americans, September 11th was the formative news event of our lives. It changed how we think about America's safety, about the risks that exist beyond our borders, and how we perceive risks here at home. The government reaction to 9-11 also began a new post-9-11 era, in which the U.S. invaded and occupied Afghanistan, and later Iraq, as a part of a sprawling global war on terror. But 20 years later, and despite the U.S. having finally pulled troops out of Afghanistan, it still feels like we're in that era. So we thought it was worth stepping back briefly to look at how 9-11 and what came after it changed America. To help us with that, we called up Laura Dugan. She's a professor of human security at Ohio State University. And for years, she helped run the Global Terrorism Database, the most comprehensive unclassified database of terrorist attacks in the world. September 11th shaped her life's work, work that she was just beginning on 9-11, when she was living outside of DC and preparing to teach her first semester of classes. I actually had just started at the University of Maryland. And so I'd been there less than a month. And I actually was in my apartment not far from campus. And my mother called me to tell me that my city was under attack. I didn't know what was happening. Dugan was teaching statistics at the time. And she remembers how she and her students tried to make sense of the world in the moments and days that followed. It was very visceral for us, right? We had a rally on campus the, the next day. At the time, we thought that the probability of another attack was imminent. And so everybody was being very cautious about a lot of things. The people I talked to who were experts in terrorism did think that this was a paradigm shift, that, that this was going to be a new normal. Airline hijackings suddenly were not seen as a maneuver to meet the demands of the hijackers, right? But this is just a newer way to have suicide attacks. And so to see an airplane as a mechanism of a suicide attack was quite shocking. And it just upped the ante entirely. Driven by that fear, changes in airport security took shape. That still exists today. The increased security in, in airports, TSA being formed, and Homeland Security having such a strong focus on airports, our security seemed to 
to be focused on, you know, preventing the last thing that happened. And so here we are going to airports, taking off our shoes and putting our liquids in little bottles. Dugan admits she knows why some of those changes were made. The government was trying to prevent 9-11 from happening again. But she also remembers what things were like before the attacks, making the new focus on security in the post-9-11 era feel all the more stark. I had to go back to what it was like prior to 9-11 and how easy it was to fly. We used to, when people were coming to visit us at, at, in our cities, we would go to the gate of the airport and have big welcome banners. In fact, if you see the movie Love Actually, it, it actually has a large scene where people are all at the gate welcoming their loved ones and their family members. And, and that was just the way life was. There was so much that we did that we took for granted that was taken away immediately after September 11th, but it never came back. In the years after 9-11, Dugan says students with personal connections to the attacks flocked to the University of Maryland to study terrorism. Students who lost family on 9-11 or whose siblings were fighting in Afghanistan. But gradually, younger students with an entirely different memory of 9-11 started enrolling. And with them, they brought different perspectives about what mattered most about the post-9-11 era. I started noticing that the students were children when 9-11 occurred. And so it became something that their parents hid from them and they didn't really know the details of what had happened until they got older, but even then they were still detached from them. There may have been a memory of what it was like before, but it wasn't very strong. Then it became that our students were born after 9-11. So this is just the way it's always been. This is as the Gen Zs were, were coming of age. What they started noticing as they matured over time was the anti-Muslim, anti-Arab backlash because of 9-11. And, and so a lot of them, and, and perhaps a, a number of millennials as well, they started seeing those sorts of biases and became more concerned about human rights and civil liberties and, and other things than about being targeted by an Islamic extremist. For these students, there was a lot about the post-9-11 era to focus on, like the passage of the Patriot Act, which overhauled how the government conducts surveillance and which forced Americans to submit to restrictions on their civil liberties in the name of security. Other students focused on how U.S. actions after 9-11 were viewed around the world, like the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, or the torture of suspected terrorists in places like Guantanamo Bay, where many were held for years without charges. Without the personal experience of having lived through 9-11, Dugan says younger generations are changing the narrative on terrorism and America's place in the world. Though 20 years later, she says it remains hard not to keep centering the U.S. and our vulnerability to global threats within the narrative. Despite that, Dugan says she's hopeful that as the rawness of 9-11 gradually recedes, it'll be easier to see September 11th in context, even if, for her, the sense of loss that she associates with the attacks never goes away. You know, we lost our innocence. We, we thought that terrorism was something that happened overseas. When September 11th occurred, um, not only did we see that it, it's not necessarily safer here, we also saw that there are people out here there who hate us. And then the next thought is, what have we done to make others hate us? So I think that since 9-11, we're, we're a little bit more critical. It's like, let's be a little bit skeptical about 
what we're doing in these other countries. Wouldn't it be nice if kids could limit themselves to playing just three hours of video games a week? Well, under new rules announced by the Chinese government, anyone under 18 is going to have to do that, whether they like it or not. Yeah, this is no honor system. China is forcing all video game companies to comply, making gamers register with their real name and government ID as a way to make sure the person signed into the game is actually the person playing it. And hello, big brother. One tool being used to do that is facial recognition. It turns out China's obsession with monitoring video game use for minors isn't new. And it's also intensified, even as other countries like South Korea have eased up on policing what kids are up to. Video game consoles were actually banned in China for a long time. It wasn't until 2014 that they actually lifted that ban again. That's Nastasia Griffion. She's a doctoral researcher at the Gaming for Emotional and Mental Health Lab in the Netherlands, where she studies how digital technology affects young people. When we asked her whether China's latest move is based on evidence that video games are bad for people, she said, no, not really. In fact, most evidence shows that video games are actually used as a coping mechanism. There seems to be a lot of pressure that young people in China experience, especially the older generations, trying to instill in their children that you have to work hard, you really have to try to make something of yourself. And those pressures and expectations, and in some cases even demands, I'm, I'm sure they really affect young people in China and other similar situations. And for them, I think going into a video game, finding perhaps like-minded individuals, because most online video games are social, I think that probably poses a huge outlet and a way of trying to relax and, and cope with the stress that they experience. One sign that China might get why kids game is that all kids will be allowed to play within the same three-hour block. From 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and other holidays, kids in China will be allowed to meet up together in online games. Griffion thinks that social pull of gaming ought to be enough to convince Chinese regulators that there are good reasons for why kids want to play. Video games to many kids offer the same benefits that maybe older generations would have found elsewhere, such as the social benefits and, and trying to discover new things and training, problem-solving skills. She admits there are problematic elements of modern video games. For instance, loot boxes. They're items you have to spend real money on to unlock things like gear to help you survive in a multiplayer battle. Some studies show these loot boxes and the way games nudge users to buy them have a psychological effect on children that's not too different from what's experienced by gambling addicts. But even for games with those features, China's way of supposedly protecting kids is pretty 1984. Personally, and I guess professionally, my biggest fear is that people don't end up talking about why these young kids go to video games so much. So my suggestion, as always, would really be to show interest and 
try to do so not in an authoritarian way, but seriously be interested and intrigued and want to know and want to understand rather than, okay, I'm just going to give you a chance to, to explain yourself, but I'm not really listening because I know what I want you to be doing. There is so much to be gained through dialogue and just having an open mind and being able and willing to talk to your child about these things, I think is really the most important thing. This week, the S&P 500 swiped right on Match Group and said, hey, want to hang out on September 20th? Match owns a lot of the dating apps we've been stuck with for the last decade. Hinge, Tinder, OkCupid, Plenty of Fish, and more. And joining the S&P 500 later this month means Match will join an elite group of 500 of the largest and best-performing companies in America. It also means dating apps are definitely here to stay. Listen, we know dating apps can lead to cringy conversations and some bad dates. But over the last 18 months, they've become one of the most reliable and safe ways to meet people. And that looks like it's not going to change anytime soon. However, if the thought of meeting a stranger you spoke to twice on the internet fills your stomach with dread, you're not alone. My friend was like that person who's like, dating apps are not for me. I have dating apps, but I get overwhelmed every time someone reaches out to me. It's too much noise. That's Lindsay Metzlar, the host of the dating podcast we met at Acme. She says one way to get past the nerves and terror is to lean on your friends a little. I took her phone and I was like, listen, I'm going to talk to some guys and we're going to make you some dates and you're going to go on them. Long story short, that friend found their match. But for those of us who are still a little rusty on the dating front or haven't updated our profiles in years, we asked Metzlar, how do we get back in the game? Her number one dating app survival tip is do you. Always ask a question or like have a good first opening line. I would say like, just embrace the weird and like just say something random. I remember when I was on dating apps, I would not respond to, hey, what's up? I don't have time for this. I would rather hear like, do you, why smoke turkey and not like regular boar's head? Which brings us to our next point. Don't take it too seriously. You have to have fun with your profile. Showcase your sense of humor while also giving information about you and who you are. And third, this is about you and your comfort level and safety. So you're gonna have to vet the people you're matching with. If they ask for your Instagram or Snapchat instead of your number, like this person is not worth your time. Seriously, I don't even know my Snapchat username anymore. A few more red flags to look out for. Anything that you are like, this puts me in a weird feeling, like this just gives me a bad feeling, get, get rid of them. If they ask you to send photos of yourself, like I'm assuming that they mean nudes or just something inappropriate, like no, absolutely not. If they start like sexting, again, hard no. Like if they ask you out immediately, as opposed to talking to you first, some people love it, some people hate it. We also want to note, a lot of these apps have zero tolerance policies on harassment. So if someone's making you uncomfortable, you can report them ASAP. Metzlar told us not only are people swiping a lot more because of the pandemic, but people are being more intentional with how they're using dating apps. What used to be a way to get a free drink or a date to a party has now become a serious place to form connections. 
the people that I'm friends with who are now dating people that they met in COVID, they met them on a dating app. And a lot of these people were people that were not looking for something serious before and especially not on an app. And I think that that has changed a lot. Metzlar's final piece of advice, we don't have to trust the people we meet on the apps right away, but we do need to trust the dating process, even the not so fun parts. It's gonna not work out with 99% of the people that you go out on dates with, because it should only work out with like one person. Rejection builds character. We've all been rejected. There's always someone who's not looking for what you have. It sounds so cheesy, but rejection really is like your protection. And so just see it as like, okay, I'm glad I figured that out now. Like someone will want what I have to offer because what I have to offer is amazing. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. We had additional help this week from Peter Bonaventure. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. And until then, check out our other podcast, 9 to 5-ish with The Skim, where we're talking all things career. Follow it wherever you listen to your podcasts.